Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm your co-host, Ron Aaron. Carol Zernio is on special assignment today, so it is just me. And we have a very special topic today. Recently, I was reading a news release from UT Health San Antonio, uh, where the University Health System performed the region's first surgery on a patient uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Being 79 myself, Knockwood still cognitively not impaired, I said to myself, is this real? Is it going to continue? Is it going to get better? And do we have a fix for dementia? Now, I know the answer to that is going to be, well, we'll see. But it's a delight to welcome uh, the surgeon who performed the surgery and two of his colleagues joining us now on the Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline, Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at UT Health San Antonio. He specializes in general neurology and surgery for epilepsy, trimental neuralgia, and movement disorders, including Parkinson's disease. His expertise is in respective surgery, radio surgery, and neuromodulation. We'll find out what all that means, including deep brain stimulation and microcardiovascular decompression. Also with us on our Caregiver SOS on our hotline, Amy Sacklad. She's the Director of Research Operations for the Glenn Biggs Institute, and with her as well as Hector Trevino, Clinical Research Project Manager with the Biggs Institute and Coordinator of the Deep Brain Stimulation for Alzheimer's Research Study. So, Dr. Papanastasio, have you found a way to fix Alzheimer's disease? Well, I think it's important to be you know, modest when we're starting out. So, of course, this is a clinical trial, and we have not found uh, something yet. We're doing the study to test if uh, this could be it. And so, you know, so far, we don't know if it's effective. And that's the whole point of the study is to find out. And on the patient that uh, I read about in the news release that came from UT Health, uh, tell us what you were doing. Oh, okay. So, so what, what, the, what the study is based on is a sort of uh, surprise finding when, when uh, neurosurgeons were trying to find a target for deep brain stimulation for eating disorders, some of the people who had been implanted noticed that their thinking was a little bit clearer. And they knew that the place that they were looking at, the hypothalamus, was right next door to the fornix and that the patients were likely having stimulation of their fornix. So the group turned their attention to the fornix as a place that might be able to be stimulated for memory disorders. And their first uh, patient group uh, was uh, early Alzheimer's disease. And so that's kind of the genesis of where this all came from. And now there's a multi-center randomized trial that's ongoing. And uh, we're one of 20-some centers. And uh, what we're doing is implanting uh, a deep brain stimulation device uh, near the fornix. And, uh, and then patients are randomized to whether it's turned on or off. And in the first part of the study, they're also randomized to whether they'll have, if they're turned on, whether they'll have low or high frequency stimulation. And then they're followed for a year. And after a year, we look at how they are on standardized ratings in Alzheimer's disease. And what we hope to see uh, is that they're... Um, their numerical scores will not have decreased at the same rate as the people who do not have stimulation. 
Now, these surgical procedures, are, are they similar to what has been done for some time now with patients with epilepsy? Yes, they are. They're very, you know, they're very similar to what's been done for epilepsy and also for movement disorders. And so there's a variety of types of brain stimulation for all of those disorders. And um, in this particular one, the leads are implanted in the brain, and then they travel underneath the skin to a pulse generator that's in the chest wall. So that just means beneath the skin in your chest outside the ribcage, and it gives uh, continuous stimulation. And so that has been used both for Parkinson's disease, for essential tremor, uh, and also for uh, epilepsy more recently. Now, similarly, where they implant a pacemaker uh, in your chest wall. Say that again? Well, pacemakers are implanted in the chest wall as well. Oh, yeah, they, they are. And in fact, we usually try to implant ours on the right side so that we leave space if anybody ever needs a cardiac pacemaker on the left side. Uh, but we do often describe them that way. We say it's like a pacemaker for the brain, and that's a, a very accurate way of thinking about it. Well, Amy, when you first heard about this procedure uh, and began talking about it, what were your thoughts? We have a, we have a number of studies that come through the Ben um, Biggs Institute, but this one in particular was uh, unique in that it would be a partnership with neurosurgery and involve the surgical procedure. And then the Glenn Biggs does all the follow-up. So we see people here and do the testing that Dr. Papanastasio mentioned. It'd be helpful to get the 411 on the Glenn Biggs Institute. We'll get that from you in a moment, but I want to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, our co-host Carol Zerniel on special assignment today. And we're talking about, uh, surgery that is being performed in several locations across the country as a first step looking at a way to deal uh, with perhaps uh, a way to address uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. And Dr. Alexander Papanastasio is the surgeon who performed the surgery at the UT Health Center here in San Antonio that we're talking about. And Amy uh, is with us as well from the Glenn Biggs Institute, and she's joined as well by Hector Trevino. So Amy, the 411 on the Glenn Biggs Institute. So the Glenn Biggs Institute was started at the end of December in 2017, and it is the only recognized Alzheimer's disease research center by the NIH in Texas. And we received that distinction about six months ago. So it's a long process of being able to apply and, and be approved for that. And we've grown exponentially in the time that I've been with the Institute. And we have many different research projects and clinical care for people with Alzheimer's. And Pretty exciting to have that here in San Antonio. That's neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. And, we and, offer and, a lot. Uh-huh. No, as I was going to say to Dr. Uh, Nastasio, uh, having done this surgery, and you've done many others on uh, folks with a variety of conditions, you mentioned uh, epilepsy being one. Uh, how hopeful are you that this will be successful? I'm pretty, I'm pretty hopeful, and uh, the reason for that is based on some pilot data. And so in the first uh, study that was done, probably a lot of people are familiar with the idea that when we do studies, the first step is safety. So we do a number of patients to make sure that it's safe to do the procedure that we want. And then if it looks like it's safe, then we move on to what we call the pivotal trial, which is when you try to figure out if it works. But what sometimes happens is in the safety trial, you get an initial look at, uh, at efficacy. And often uh, it's not statistically significant because the safety studies don't have the power to detect a clinical change. That's how they're designed. Um, uh, On the other hand, if you can see a trend towards an effect, well, that gives you some idea that you may 
likely see an effect uh, down the road when you do the pivotal trial. And in this case, the pilot data were pretty encouraging in that the people who underwent stimulation had a decline in their uh, cognitive function at a slower rate, not statistically significant, but a trend towards a slower rate uh, compared with the people who didn't have stimulation. And that was one of the things that was reviewed uh, by uh, you know, the FDA and CMS when they're giving approval to do these trials under a, a, an individual device exemption. Um, and there, it was actually a very unique situation that when the government agencies that reviewed the study looked at it, based on that, they thought it was likely enough to work and an important enough topic that they set up a unique situation where the insurer actually pays for the procedure, even though it's part of a trial. And that's, a, that's unique because usually these clinical trials have to be paid for by a company, for example. And what I thought I heard you say as we began talking is that you began to see these uh, results on patients who are having a procedure uh, to address eating disorders. That's how it was originally discovered. That's right. Where the patients were having uh, electrodes implanted for that. That's right. And how effective is that for an eating disorder? Not at all. So what's interesting is that it's progressed much more quickly uh, for uh, memory disorders and dementia than it has for eating disorders. You can imagine that across the field of uh, neurosurgery and neurology and neurosciences, uh, we're in you know, a new uh, era where we're looking for how to use brain stimulation to treat every disorder that we can. Uh, and some are moving you know, more quickly than others. And like everything in biomedical science, it goes and fits and starts. You try something and it works try something else, it doesn't work. And so you can imagine, at least for the eating um, disorders, whether it be obesity or anorexia, uh, we, there haven't been uh, any positive uh, randomized trials at this point. In your own case, Dr. Papastasio, what got you interested in this field? Oh, I've all, I mean, it's interesting. As a, as a stereotactic and functional neurosurgeon, and probably for most of us in neurology and neurosurgery, memory is one of those holy grails. I can even remember when I was an undergraduate in college, uh, talking to Dr. Charles Yanofsky, who was one of my teachers there, and I was trying to think of what I should do research on. And I said, well, what if you were, if you, he's a person who was a very famous uh, and uh, accomplished geneticist, I believe won the Nobel Prize as well. And he said, I said, if you were starting over, what would you study? And he said, well, why don't you try and figure out memory? And uh, of course, I'm not the only one who's had that thought across the country, you know, countless people sure. are uh, interested in studying memory, but that's kind of just to give a sense of why would I be interested in this? It's also true that, um, in a, we, have a, we have a parallel but uh, you know, otherwise unrelated study looking at memory. So I'm part of a consortium that studies uh, memory in epilepsy patients. And we hope to, uh, we actually have ongoing pilot studies looking at other targets for treating memory besides the fornix. And so it's sort of a general interest that I have. And of course, you can imagine that memory disabilities, you know, they affect uh, a large number of people in the United States. And uh, trying to address it is, of course, a, you know, a real you know, primary thing that we're after. And you see memory issues with Parkinson's patients as well. That's right. And, and, and you know, one of the most common causes of memory problems is, is, is the uh, spectrum of neurodegenerative diseases. And so that certainly includes Parkinson's. Um, Alzheimer's is, of course, by far the most common. You mentioned a part of the brain where uh, you were implanting these devices. Uh, can you go through that again and give us a kind of a verbal picture of the brain? Where are you going? Sure. You mentioned the hypothalamus and then what? Yeah, so the hypothalamus is not the area we're interested in. That was the one for the eating stuff. Yeah, you the, said uh, adjacent to. Right next to it is called the fornix. And um, the fornix is a white matter bundle, and it's the output of the hippocampus. And so many people from their college classes otherwise may be familiar with the hippocampus. That's a structure that's involved in forming new memories. 
And some people have heard of a famous patient, HM, who had both of his hippocampi removed, uh, you know, a long time ago, I think in the 40s or so. And uh, then, of course, was not able to form new memories. And so that was obviously a problem that was never repeated, of course, again, uh, once it was found how critical that was. And so the hippocampus has um, output through the fornix, and it's part of this thing called it's part of this thing called the Papes circuit. And so when people think of the limbic lobe, that's like the temporal lobe. And just for your listeners, if you kind of just think about where your temple is on the side of your head, and you kind of put your finger there, right beneath that is the temporal lobe. And the part of the temporal lobe that's the closest to the middle of the brain, that's where the hippocampus is. And it's this long thing. It's a, it's kind of similar to the you know shape of a hot dog, but it's only about two or three inches long. And that's the thing that we're talking about that has the output to the fornix. And when you uh, go in there, uh, how do you know where you are? Hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. I'll let you put that thought together. We need to take a quick break. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. We're talking with a specialist at the UT Health Science Center, a surgeon, Dr. Alexander Papanastasio, and with us as well, is Amy Sacklin, who is the Director of Research Operations at the Glenn Biggs Institute, and Hector Trevino is with us as well. He's coordinator of the Deep Brain Stimulation for Alzheimer's Research Study. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking about a fascinating topic this hour. Carol Zernio, by the way, on special assignment. We're talking about a a, a surgical procedure performed on an Alzheimer's patient trying to implant an electric device uh, to try to provide an answer uh, to slowing that memory loss that accompanies Alzheimer's disease. And I gave the layman's 411 on that. With us on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline is the surgeon who performed that surgery, Dr. Alexander Papanastasio. Also with us on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline, Amy Sacklin, who is the Director of Research Operations for the Glenn Biggs Institute, and Hector Trevino is here as well. Uh, he's manager of the Institute's Deep Brain Stimulation for Alzheimer's Research Study. Uh, and off the air, uh, Hector, Amy said to me, you're the guy, you're the contact if you want to get into that study. Uh, so tell me, who are you looking for? Are you still looking for possible patients? And what are the criteria for getting involved? Uh, yes, thank you. So we are looking for participants still. So this is very much an active trial. Um, so we're looking for generally healthy people that have been diagnosed with mild Alzheimer's um, that are at least 65 years of age. Um, they must also have a caregiver or a family member that that can accompany them uh, on visits, and that's very important because uh, we need a lot of their input as well, since they know the patient the best. Um, we are excluding a lot of people that don't meet certain criteria, especially with some comorbidities, so people that have advanced cardiac disease or they've had any other kind of um, central nervous system issues like strokes will be excluded from the study. 
And then how do you get involved? You just pick up the phone, get me a Hector? Pretty much. So um, if you call the Glenn Biggs Institute, um, our general number goes to a referral and the referral is then taken to me. So I receive either the phone call or the email and then we work with our recruiters to um, speak to patients. We go over the study details. We go over some eligibility criteria. And then if everything looks good, then we go ahead and schedule them for a visit at the Glenn Biggs Institute. And of course, one of the challenges, Amy, is people come with very high expectations and hope. If you're going to do this to me, I want to wake up and be able to remember everything. Right. And it's really critical that we rec- remind people that we have that it is a study. And so there is a placebo group. And then there are either the two different experimental groups. And people need to be aware of that and sign consent before they're enrolled in the study. So placebo means they don't get the good juice. Not initially, no. But as the study progresses, the goal would be for those people to be able to have the device turned on and have that stimulation. But you do implant the device uh, for those who are in the placebo control group. Is that correct? Yes, Dr. Papanastasio can probably speak to that a little bit more. Sure, Dr. Papanastasio, even if it's not going to be turned on, uh, do the placebo group get the device? Yes. So that's one of the critical things about the study is that uh, we want to avoid people getting better because they expect to get better. And that's sort of the whole point of one of these randomized blinded trials. Well, that's the placebo effect. Exactly, placebo effect. And so that's why everybody gets implanted. But importantly, uh, they're only randomized for one year. And after one year, then everybody can be turned on. So there won't, there wouldn't be anybody who was implanted, but then never had uh, the device turned on. Everybody would get turned on after a year. And um, in terms of you know people's eligibility, I think you know the comments by Hector were terrific. Um, one thing that's important is that you know, pretty much in terms of a person's overall health and cardiac health, anybody that can undergo surgery and have a general anesthetic is potentially a candidate. Um, and so that's, that's, that actually is most people. So once somebody gets to the point of having early Alzheimer's has been on a stable dose of a cholinesterase inhibitor, you know, there's a list of things, but it's a relatively, uh, you know, broad set of criteria that, you know, that people ought to be able to make. One of the key cutoffs that we've seen impact people is that it is for people 65 and over. So those who are under 65 aren't eligible for this study. Uh, of course, we hope that in the future, that's an age uh, group that we can help as well, because there's certainly a number of people with Alzheimer's in that category. I was asking you, how do you know where you're going in oh, the brain? Yeah. It, it's fascinating to me to think about. Uh, I, I'm not a neurosurgeon. I don't even play a doctor on the radio. But there you are. You're in the operating room, right? Uh, and you're going into somebody's brain. How do you know you're in the right spot? Well, it definitely takes a team of people and a lot of preparation. Uh, but the first point is that for any of these surgeries, whether it's Parkinson's or epilepsy or, or in this case, Alzheimer's disease, you're just using the same set of techniques and it's called stereotactic neurosurgery. And what that word means is that we apply a frame to a person's head uh, so that the frame is securely affixed to the bone. And then once you have a relationship between that frame and their head, then you can take an image like a, like a CAT scan in the OR and that can tell you where that frame is relative to their CT image, which can be fused with an MRI image. And then all of a sudden, you know where everything is in the brain relative to that frame of reference. Then what we do is there's lots of ways of doing this, but the most accurate way is to use a neurosurgical robot. And so we do these at University Hospital where the hospital purchased a uh, Renishaw Neuromate robot uh, that we use primarily for epilepsy surgery and also for other stereotactic surgery like this. And, um, and we use that robot to get to places in the head with very high accuracy, about 0.5 millimeters of error. 
So that's very close to where you want to go. And a, and a thing that's pretty important to think about is that when we're talking about deep brain stimulation, it's a relatively general term for any target that's deep in the brain. And the reason that exists is that those are all targets that you wouldn't want to dissect down to because trying to get there, you would injure things on the way. And so all of these procedures are minimally invasive um, and uh, the deep brain stimulation electrode is passed by this robot on its way there without us ever seeing where it's going. And then once we've done that, so we got our robot in, we put the electrode where we think it's supposed to go, well, then we test it. So for these patients, for these procedures, we have the patient awake because there are certain things that we expect to see. A lot of your listeners may know that the brain doesn't have sensation. So if we use local anesthetic to numb the scalp, uh, we can do surgery awake and have it not be uncomfortable. Um, And the things that we're looking for is that when we stimulate, sometimes people will have vague memories. And our first subject did have some sort of vague memories, like she was remembering stuff. And the other thing is that because it's right next to the hypothalamus, not only does that do eating related behaviors, it also uh, helps with your heart rate and blood pressure. So when we stimulate, we can see the heart rate go up and we can see the blood pressure go up. So if we see those things, that also gives us physiological confirmation that we're in the correct spot. And then after that, we do one more thing, which is we take another uh, scan that's like a CAT scan, this OR image, and uh, that, that shows where the electrode is. We fuse it to the MRI and make sure that we put it in the place that we intended to put it. And then once all that's done, well, then we close everything up and uh, we're done with the surgery. And how do you wire that electrode in? Oh, so then the, well, there's the, the, the company that uh, makes this uh, is uh, functional neuromodulation and they're teamed up with Boston Scientific. So we're using a device from Boston Scientific that is also used for Parkinson's. They've got a device that secures it. It's like a little circle that goes around a dime sized hole in the skull to secure the electrode. And then we tunnel the electrode underneath the skin and then at the second procedure, we uh, tunnel a, an extension cord that goes from around the area behind the ear down to the chest wall. And then we make a pocket for the generator at the chest wall. We connect all those things up and then we test uh, their electrical signals to make sure that they're working. Um, and that's sort of then we're all done with everything that you need to be all set. And of course, the whole thing is under the skin at the end of this. And, and what's the recovery period for the patient? You know, it is surprisingly fast. So the typical hospital stay is one night. And most wow. people go home the next day. And what are they feeling while you're, you know, going down into their brain? Do they, do they feel any sensation? No, there's no sensation in the brain. Sometimes people feel pressure because the way the frame is attached is with screws that go into the bone. So sometimes people feel some pressure, but it's usually, you know, very bearable and uh, not bad. Um, and then, of course, other things they may feel when we're stimulating were those things you mentioned of maybe feeling right. some vague memories uh, or... Uh, they usually don't notice the heart rate and blood pressure changes, but it's certainly possible they might notice. So, Amy, this big is so much of anything. Uh, Amy, as I listen to this, uh, it, it's pretty exciting. Uh, what do you think about it? I think it's one of our most exciting studies, and I really would encourage people to call, even if they're not sure if they meet the criteria. We have so many ongoing clinical trials for people with Alzheimer's that we'd be very happy to speak to anyone who is interested in being part of a clinical trial. Some of your other trials. So we have several medication trials, um, and then we have uh, other trials which are more um, intervention-based, I would say. Because to date, there's no real medication that uh, is very effective in treating Alzheimer's. There's nothing out there that works, really. So the one that is FDA approved can only be given as part of a study, and we are running a study with that medication. So if people are interested in trying that medicine, it's for a very narrow group of people 
um, they would have to qualify, but they can also give us a call. I'd ask Dr. Papanastasio what got him interested in this field. What about you, Amy? So I've been at the Health Science Center for about 25 years. I started in psychiatry. My background is my graduate school is in psychology. Um, and then I moved to neurology and did, worked there for a number of years. But as soon as Dr. Shishadre, who's the head of the institute, came to the to San Antonio, she came from Boston University, it was very clear to me that this is very exciting and cutting edge research. And it was something that I wanted to be a part yeah, of. Yeah, I've interviewed Dr. Shishadre. She's a real hoot. I love talking to her. She's wonderful to work for. And before we let you go, uh, Hector, we appreciate you being here as well. How many more patients are you looking for? Um, so overall, the study is looking to recruit 210 participants, but this is across the United States. There's a site in Canada and eight sites in Germany, but overall, we're looking to recruit 210. So as long as the study's still open and we have those slots open, we will recruit as many as we can. So call the Glenn Biggs Institute, ask for Hector. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, so you um, can hook up. What, yes. Yeah, so what uh, listeners can do is they can call 210 567-8229 and leave a voice message with their name, their phone number, and then just kind of indicate that they're calling for the deep brain stimulation study. And if they can right indicate- we're, we're flat okay. out of time, Hector. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Papanastasio. Uh, Dr. Amy Sockland and Hector Trevino, thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org. Did you know a birth control pill doesn't need estrogen to prevent pregnancy? Say hello to Estrogen-Free Slind, effective for women of all body types, a good option if you smoke or have vascular issues, and a flexible window to catch up on a missed pill. Don't take Slind if you have kidney, liver, or adrenal problems, cervical cancer, or hormone-sensitive cancer, or unexplained vaginal bleeding. Before taking Slind, tell your doctor if you may be pregnant or have had blood clots, stroke, heart attack, high potassium in your blood, diabetes, or depression, which can lead to serious side effects. Talk to your doctor or visit Slind.com.